Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you'll open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> text has been read for us from verses 8 through 12. We have uh, talked quite a bit about the Apostles' emphasis in the book of Hebrews on saving people and Christians from falling away. In fact, it's impressive to me to, to think about the fact that God had an entire letter written in the New Testament just to get us to endure and to not fall away. When I was younger and I would read about the kings of, uh, of Judah that were good kings, like Asa, uh, like Joash, uh, and Solomon and others, who the scriptures would actually say did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They were good kings. And then it gave an exception, or you would read about something happened in the end of their life. It wasn't simply that they fell into sin. They rebelled. In the case of Jehoash, he actually killed the son of the high priest who had led him all of those years. Asa rebelled. Solomon rebelled. And, and I always looked at those things and it put great fear in me. What happens if I live most all of my life in serving God and then at the end just do something dumb <laughs> and end up losing my soul? You ever thought that way? Ever concerned with that? It is a concern that the Hebrew letter has. The Hebrew writer has this concern. He's talking to people who have come closer to the end of their lives. And he is telling them, you're not immune from this, and you could lose your salvation. And so we have, we have and I have tried with all my heart to take Hebrews and try to help me, first off, to make sure I don't fall into that. To know that, as he said in Hebrews 4.1, let us fear, lest after receiving these promises we should come short of it. It is something that he highlights throughout his letter. So we've looked at a lot of different ways that that would happen. This time, the message here is that we overcome and overcome falling away because of our new covenant. Because of the covenant that he's made with us, as opposed to the covenant he made with Israel. And that's what we want to look at uh, this morning. I want you to start just with this idea of a message that comes from the word covenant itself. What was a covenant with Israel? In Israel's covenant, God made a covenant as a suzerain, as a king that would do something that was quite benevolent. He would see a country or a nation that was being abused and he would deliver them from their abuse. 
Give them freedom and then tell them that if you want to continue to have the blessings that I can provide for you because of my watchful care and power, we can make a covenant. Here are the terms of the covenant. If you would accept the terms of this covenant, I will be a benefactor to you. I will take care of you. And that is that continued protection is exactly what God has done for us. You see it in the words, if you notice in your text, in Hebrews 8, and you see it in the words that are given in verse 10, when he says at the very end of that, I will be their God and they should be my people. This is the critical point in the covenant. You're not my people. I'm not your God right now. You haven't accepted me as your God. But if you will accept what I am doing for you, if you will enter in this covenant with me, I will be your God. I will be the one who is your benefactor. I will protect you. I will take care of you. And you will be my people. So this will be the relationship we have. This is a suzerain covenant. And it is different from other kinds of covenants. And it's different from a covenant that you and I would think about, which is the reason that there are so often problems with understanding that God, when God makes a covenant with us, we tend to think in present-day terms. We think in terms of, well, okay, let's, uh, let's just evaluate this and, and maybe we can make a few changes with what you have in your covenant and you'll be all right with it. No, that's not the how this works. This is not a negotiated covenant. This is not a covenant when two people sit down and say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this if you do this. And you say, well, how about this instead of that? This is not that kind of contract. It is not that kind of covenant. There's no negotiations here. God is saying, I deliver you, I provide for you, you be my people, I will be your God, that's it. You go to the terms of the covenant. You remember that at the end of the book of Joshua? And Joshua stands before the people and he says, look, all your fathers have worshipped these other gods. You have been worshipping these other gods. And you need to make a choice. We're now in the land of Canaan and we're getting ready to enter We've entered and we're getting ready to go and go to battle against 10-foot-tall giants. That's what we're giving in, We're getting ready to do. And you need to make a choice this day whom you're going to serve. You're either going to serve the gods that your father served on the other side of, of the river, or you're going to serve those gods of Egypt, or you're going to choose to serve the Lord. Which is it? You make that choice. No negotiation, you make the choice. Can you imagine being in their position? And you're thinking about all of the people of Canaan, and you're thinking about getting ready to go into battle with these people and all of these giants. And you're saying, let me see here. Do I want to serve the Nile God or the true God? Well, let's weigh this out. Can you imagine how dumb that would be? <laughs> You, and for them, it was a no-brainer. I mean, right at that point, it was just a no-brainer. They said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to serve the Lord because we saw what he did to the Egyptians and we saw what he did to the wilderness and we saw all the things he did and we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua says, I doubt it. That's a paraphrase. I doubt it. You can't serve the Lord. 
You guys have proven to us over and over again your rebellious spirit. I don't think so. And when you do break this covenant, he is going to destroy you. I don't believe you'll do it. Oh, no, no, no. We will do it. And you know what he said? He didn't jump up and down and go, whoopee. He said, you have testified against yourselves that you have made a promise to serve the Lord, and you better keep it. Because he will turn and destroy you. See, this is a different kind of covenant than what we are often accustomed to. And this covenant is also based on the endurance of the benefactor. When you buy life insurance or some other kind of insurance, your insurance is only as good as the company. If the company goes under, you spend all that money for insurance and it didn't do you any good. I've had that happen once or twice. <laughs> it's, it's just the way it is. You're banking on that company. Well, here's the deal. You want to serve the Lord? How well will he be able to endure long enough to give you and keep the promises he's made to you as opposed to some idol that you're serving? Your house, your money, your desires, your passions, your wishes, all of those things, how enduring is that going to be and whether or not which benefactor, quote-unquote, is going to be able to provide for you? This is the picture that he's giving. And so there again, we say there's just no choice. God is the only choice because he's the only one that's enduring. And then there's another part about this. Covenants were sealed with blood. Sacrificial blood and blood was sprinkled on the people and blood was poured out at the altar so that God was touching blood with them. And what each were saying was, I promise to keep this covenant. If I do not, let me be destroyed just like these animals. And God did the same thing for us. In chapter 9 of Hebrews in verse 15, he talks about how the first covenant was made with blood and our covenant as well by the blood of Jesus sprinkled on our hearts, chapter 10 and verse 22. We have been given God's blood sprinkled on us so that we are confessing to the fact that if we do not keep this covenant, we are admitting that we are willing to be destroyed. And that is what we have entered into. And when we were immersed in the water, into the death of Christ, we touched that blood. That's what that means. We're immersed into his death, into his blood. We touched that and made a promise that this would be what would happen. And then you think about what did happen when Israel touched blood, made a promise, and then violated it. After all God did for them, they ended right back in bondage as they had done before, as where they were before, as God said, fine, you want to serve the other gods? Have at it. See how that works out for you. And they're utterly destroyed. That's the picture of what will happen when we violate a covenant of God. Now, I've led you down that path for one reason. That's not the message of this text. It is a true message, but it is not the message of this text. This preacher is not warning them against failing to keep the covenant. The preacher is telling them that the new covenant will deliver them from failure. And that's what I want you to see this morning. I purposely took that other side. We need to have the fear. But that's not what the preacher's dealing with now. 
He's already talked about that back in chapter 3 and 4 and chapter 2, 1 and chapter 5. Now he's helping us understand how we can avoid failure, how we won't fail because of the character of this new covenant. That's where we have to go now. So let's go from there and ask this question. What was really wrong with the first covenant? Give some thought a second. What was really wrong with that first covenant? I probably can guess what you're thinking because it's what I often have thought. Well, the problem with the first covenant is it couldn't save you. <laughs> the first covenant didn't give us permanent forgiveness of sins. Why, the first covenant didn't do those things. You know, and we, and we just look at that and say, it's pretty obvious. Like you look at verses 7, verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, see, see, faulty covenant, bad covenant, bad covenant. And then, then he finds fault with them. Days are coming when I'll make a new covenant, like, like, not like the covenant I made with them. You didn't continue in that. I didn't cause concern from new covenant. And we just look at it and go, that's what this is about. Old covenant, bad covenant. New covenant, good covenant. We teach the people around us. You got to get rid of the old covenant and come to the new covenant. That's what this text is about. It isn't what this text is about. That is a truth in this text, but it's not his primary point. It's not where he's going with it. Let me show you what he's doing here. First, notice the words in verse 8. For he finds fault with them. Oh, yeah. Aren't you right there with him? Sure. He found fault with those people in Israel. He found fault with them. They broke his covenant. Exactly. See, bad covenant, bad people. We're in good covenant, good people. Uh, well, just wait a minute. Are, are, you, are you really saying that somehow we're better than the people in Israel? That we somehow have just done such a good job of keeping God's commands and laws that he just went, oh, cool, you're so wonderful. I think I'll have Jesus die for you and you get a new covenant. No, that's not what's going on here. He found fault with the people and it's the same fault he finds with us. We tend to have a problem of trying to take old covenant bad laws, new covenant good laws, and somehow we're in the good laws. Paul said in Romans that in Romans uh, chapter chapter seven, he said the old law was righteous and good and holy and just. wasn't bad commandments. The people were bad. The covenant could not permanently save them, but the people were the ones that were bad. And the same is also true with us. We need a covenant that goes beyond a new set of laws. So I'm hoping to reframe how you look at this. Not bad covenant, need new laws. Now we're under new covenant. Now we have new laws. How are you doing with obeying the laws of the new covenant? You just got that down pat? It's not really much of a problem? Sailing right through it? Your heart's right with God all the time? Yeah, exactly. 
as we chuckle within ourselves saying, eh, maybe not so much. Here's a mistake. Christianity has made this mistake. Christians have made this mistake. We look at the old covenant and the new covenant and we simply think this text is only talking about getting rid of one that was imperfect and putting in another that was perfect. That's where we tend to go. And there is far more to this than what we think. Notice these words, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. What would you have thought would come next? If you didn't read the rest of it, here's the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And what would you write in next if you didn't have the rest of this text? I would think that we would write in verse 12. Here's what comes next. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will remember your sins no more. I'll forgive your iniquities. Here's the covenant I'm making. It's now permanent forgiveness. That's the covenant I'm making. That is a truth in this. Certainly, he said so. But that's not the first thing he said, and that isn't the only thing he said, and that isn't even the most important and primary thing he said. The first things he says is, I will be their God and they should be my people. I'll put my laws in their heart and in their minds and I'll be their God and they should be my people. The first point of the new covenant is that God is developing a relationship with us through that covenant. A relationship that he did not have with Israel. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will have my laws and, and testimonies in their heart. I will write them there. I will put them on their heart to make them then my people. That's what I'm going to do. And here then is where we fail. We look at this thing just like salvation. Why do I come to Christ? Because i got to get rid of my sins. And once I come to Christ, what have I done? I got rid of my sins. Yay, go on my right way rejoicing. That's what I came for. That's what I've got. Oh, yeah, yeah, i got to keep doing some things. So I keep having my sins forgiven. If, if that's your view, there's some major changes you have to make in your life. Because... That's a wrong view. The covenant isn't simply about getting rid of your sins. Getting rid of our sins is the way and the means by which we come to what God really desires of us. Look at these words in Romans 7 and verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, talking about the ending of the old law, beginning of the new. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We weren't bearing fruit for God before. Israel didn't bear fruit for God. He says, I want you to know that you have died and through the body of Christ so that you can belong to somebody else. You can be theirs and you can actually bring fruit for God. The first and foremost thing is not forgiveness. Forgiveness enables me 
now to be his, to be his people, to be his, him be my God, for me to be able to bear fruit for him and him to accept that sacrifice that he would not have accepted in my unholy state. That's the picture that he gives. Now here's the means by which we become his people then. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I don't know how you read that, but I, I, think, I think many years I would read that and my eyes would just kind of glaze over. He's going to write these laws in my heart and write these laws in my mind. And, and okay, really? How, how, how is he doing that? Didn't the scribes have the laws? Didn't the scribes know what the laws were? Didn't the Pharisees know the laws? Didn't the Jews know the law? Didn't so many people in the Old Testament know the law? He says, in this case, I'm going to write it on you. I'm going to make it in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean you memorize the Scripture. There's a great deal of good to memorizing the Scripture. But memorizing it alone is not going to put the laws in your heart and mind. God says, this is something that I am doing for you. So let's start here and let's just ask this. What was in our hearts before we became Christians? So if you think back, for some of us it's a long, long way. You think about what was in your heart, what was in your mind before you became a Christian. In fact, let's just let Paul describe it for us. He describes it, chapter 2 of Ephesians 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. No, no exceptions here. We're all here. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was what was in our heart before. We were following all the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. All of us once lived in those things, and we were by nature children of wrath. That's where we were. That was what was in our minds. How is that going to somehow change? So here's, here's what happened. You were baptized, and you came up out of the water, and all those passions and desires just vanished. I don't hear any amens on that one. No? It didn't just vanish? Oh, really? So suddenly something has to happen there. You see, we have to realize that God in the Old Testament understood that simply a new set of commands was not going to fix who we are. We are human. We are as human as the people were in the wilderness that God destroyed. We're human and we fail. It's not an excuse, but we do. And God to the rescue. And the new covenant is a means by which he rescues. Not a means by which he gives us another set of commands and goes, well, you blew that one too. What's the matter with you? Why can't you understand this? I gave you some even better ones. No, that wasn't the way it was going to work. So the new covenant is not just a new set of commands. It is a means by which God works on our heart and transforms us. 
So there's transformation, and always the key to transformation is what Jesus does at the cross. So I'm putting that before you right now, but let's back up and notice the process. Notice how Paul talks about this in another letter, in the letter to the Romans. And I'd like you to take a look at this and read it with me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we're just going to read down these 11 verses. I hope you get the sense of it, of what he's uh, telling us here. Romans 5, verse 1. Now let's hear his words here. He's talking about how this process happened that God began to transform us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Three times in this text he says we rejoice about something. If we rejoice about it, what's happening? Our heart is transforming. Our heart is changing. Why? Because we now are standing in his grace and because of something he did for us. And verse 4 Uh, Or verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We don't even mind the sufferings anymore. We rejoice in that too. Knowing that suffering is going to produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We're even glad about suffering because we know it's going to make us stronger and closer to God. And then verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for, do you please, if you mark your Bible, you want to circle for and do like I would do, I then I'm going to put yellow inside the circle so it really stands out on the page. Why or what did God do pouring love into my heart by the Holy Spirit? How did the Holy Spirit do that? For... While we were, what? While we were still, uh, while we were, uh, excuse me, I get this right. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more what? Much more we're going to be saved. If he saved us from the horribleness of what we were in, much more he is now going to save us to get us to the end. Because verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, his intercessory life in heaven. He's doing that. More than that then, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What changed us? Well, now here's the problem. And we've gone back to this many times, but it's such a perfect example. Remember the story, Simon the Pharisee, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. And the woman who came into the house, weeping and crying and washing the feet of Jesus. And Simon the Pharisee is looking with disdain on the sinful woman because he's not a bad sinner like her. And in the end, Jesus says her sins 
which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. How was her heart changed? Jesus changed her heart to love Him much because she realized the greatness of her forgiveness. Too many people come to Christ, quote-unquote, and are baptized and come up out of that water without being impressed with what just happened. And the reason they're not that impressed is because the sins they've committed, they weren't impressed. They were that bad. They measured them. They weighed them out. Especially if we grew up in the church. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as those people. So I just went through and I got baptized because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to get baptized. And we miss the significance of the change that's happening in the new covenant. Let's go beyond that. I would like you to read with me Ezekiel 20 and notice beginning at verse 39. This is probably a, not a very well-known passage for most of you. But Ezekiel 20, this is one of the most wonderful. I, I, the first time I read this and discovered this, it... Uh, it really broke me. It was just amazing what he said. Throughout Ezekiel 20, he's been talking about how many times they violated his covenant and how many times they turned to idols and how many times he destroyed them or wanted to but didn't because of his name's sake. And then he gets to the end and he says, now here's what I'm going to do. Verse 39, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. Just start with that. You people who want to go serve your idols, you just go right ahead and do it. But I'm telling you something, that never again is, are you going to ever profane my holy name again. Verse 40. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, you see that? All of them shall serve me in the, in the land. There I will accept them. There I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know, emphasis, know, you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves from all the evils that you have committed. See the heart change taking place there? Now 44. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You're going to hate yourself for your sins. And you, all of you, are going to serve me. And you are going to serve me in holiness. 
and you'll offer me sweet sacrifices that I will accept. Not like those sacrifices you did that were just things that you thought you had to do in order to win my approval. Now, you're going to remember your ways. And when you do that, and your heart has been changed, I am now going to deal with you. I thought I was going to get so scared when I read the words, I am going to deal with you according to my namesake, not according to your evil ways, and not according to your corrupt deeds. And that's what the covenant is. That's what we're reading in Hebrews 8. It's that same thing. And that is how God begins to change us and write those laws on our heart. He said, they shall all know me, Hebrews 8 here. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. When you think about that word know, what are you thinking about? They're not going to teach their neighbor and their brother saying, No, Lord, why isn't that? Because they're not. They haven't come. They didn't come to God as an adult. They came to God as a child, as an infant. At least they didn't come to God. They were put within the covenant. But now, he says, if you're going to come into the covenant, you will know me. And no one will have to say to somebody else, Do you know who the Lord is? You won't have to teach them who the Lord is because they would have known that before they actually came in. The word know is intimate in nature. It's not awareness. It's not just saying, oh, you know, a child is aware of who God is. A child is aware of what's right and wrong. A child is aware of sin. He is talking about here not awareness, but intimate knowledge. I know That's the step. How can that happen? One final text. How can that happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. Here is what Paul is trying to get across to babes in Christ who simply do not understand what he was trying to do for them and all the apostles doing for them. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, he's talking about the mystery of God he says, these things God has revealed to us, us apostles and prophets. He's revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now remember what the covenant promise was. I'm going to write my laws in your heart. I'm going to put them in your minds. It's going to be embedded in you. It's going to be part of you. And then Paul says, here's how this happens. God has the the Holy Spirit knows the, even the very depths of God. Verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Understand what? The very depths of God searches everything about God, all his mind. He says, then you'll know those things. And then verse 13, we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit. The Word of God has, God has infused in it tremendous power. And that power 
is what changes us through a covenant that he's provided so that we won't fail. We won't fail because it's based upon the greatest gift that's ever been given. By putting his laws in our mind, in our hearts, so that we are his people and he is our God and we rejoice in what he has done, it creates in us then the desire to never again fall away from him because I'll remember his sins no more. Our covenant is so good that God is no longer going to deal with us according to our corrupt ways, but for his name's sake. And we are so excited about that that we rejoice in standing with him in that grace. We rejoice even in sufferings and we rejoice in God. And so that rejoicing and that desire for him overwhelms and outpaces anything else in this life to the point that the corrupt deeds and the bad ways, we can't stand it. We hate it. And thus, we enjoy him never remembering our sins again. Are you in the new covenant? If you're in the new covenant, you know the Lord. Not just aware of the Lord. You have an intimacy with the Lord. And that intimacy grows deeper and deeper as you serve him. And becomes something that will always keep you from failing. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in that new covenant, you have to be buried with Christ in baptism for the remission of your sins. But that's not, that's just a symbolic picture of him cleansing you at that moment and raising you to start living a different life because of what he's done for you. But you have to come to the point of really understanding how bad your sins are. If you just think you made a few mistakes and you need to get baptized for it, watch out. Watch out. You need to be struck by what he did. And we're glad to help you. And talk to us afterwards or step forward while we stand and while we sing.